HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to The Farm Report. And I'm your host, as always, Erin Fairbanks, Executive Director of the Heritage Radio Network. And um, today we are going to be sitting down with a very special friend, um, an old boss, actually, um, Stuart uh, Borowski, Union Square's grass man. Stuart, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Erin. Thanks for having me in. It's great to have you here. So I'm excited because, I mean, in a lot of ways, you and your business is really at the forefront of um, the urban farming movement here in New York City. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we actually uh, started farming. Uh, I started the farm growing wheatgrass and greens up in Monticello in 1994, but I moved everything down to Brooklyn uh, near Park Slope uh, in 1999. Nice. So you've been going 1999. That's what 14, 15, 14, 14, 14 years. years. Yes. And people probably, if you're uh, lucky enough to live in the New York area and frequent the Union Square Green Market, you'll recognize Stuart and his stand because uh, you drive the short bus. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, the little yellow bus on the west side of the market. Nice. And I know when people think grass, we're out. I mean, I always think weed, but that's not the grass we're talking about today. So why don't you break it down for us? What are uh, the grasses and the sprouts that you produce? Sure. Uh, basically, uh, I'm growing wheatgrass and other uh, sprouts, but they're really grown as microgreens. And, and the distinction is is that they're, they're brought on past the sprouting stage for about seven to ten days so that they're actually greens. Uh, but because they're so young, they still retain a lot of the nutrition that's found in the seeds or in the sprouting seeds. So those include the carbohydrates and the enzymes and a lot of the other nutrients that we need for actual energy. So people usually associate greens with cleansing and the greens that we grow definitely do that. But uh, they're also real, uh, real food. So the wheatgrass is something I think people are probably most familiar with seeing in uh, health food stores. Um, how do people usually consume it? 
Well, generally, uh, it's ground into a juice, and that's because the wheatgrass has a lot of fiber. Uh, on the other hand, it could be chewed. I really uh, compare it to sugarcane, which is to say that you could chew it by itself or you could put it through a special machine. You wouldn't really mix it necessarily with other vegetables. And wheatgrass is one of those um, items. It has a you know not shelf kind of stable, so to speak. It's not like a apple or an orange where we can pick it and put it aside on the house. It's a living product, pretty much up to the time that you consume it. Yeah, that's correct. Basically, the nature of the plant dictates uh, the rhythm of our business, and because you want to consume the wheatgrass when it's young, it's got a very brief shelf life as a living plant because it's not going to die necessarily, but it's certainly not going to be as fresh or as tender. Also, once you process it and make it into a juice, the uh, the, the components of wheatgrass juice that are healthy for us are uh, include enzymes which actually help the wheatgrass to be digested in your body. And because this is kind of like a self-digesting food, it, it works even better in your body, but doesn't really sit even in the fridge, won't keep. I remember from, from working on the stand, you know, people coming up and kind of, you know, almost a little bit like you were like the, sometimes wearing this hat of like Dr. Grassman. Oh, I'm having this issue or I'm feeling this way or, you know, can the grass help me th- with this? Can you talk about some of the kind of common um uh, correct and maybe incorrect perceptions about when to when to enjoy wheatgrass and how to make it part of your diet and, and what kind of impact you can expect to see from it. Uh, sure. Uh, basically, um, there's been a tremendous amount of marketing for wheatgrass, partially because it's it's such a a unique kind of food and partially because people really struggle uh, over the course of their lifetimes, if if not, you know, all the time uh, with health concerns, and they're always eager uh, to find some solution, either to repair or to uh, prevent disease. And the truth is, is that uh, a healthy lifestyle includes exercise, rest, and good nutrition. And so wheatgrass is really um, a very important part of good nutrition. Now, of course, people can live their whole lives without wheatgrass, but they really should not, in my opinion, live their whole lives <laughs> without fresh greens, without live foods, and without uh, basically some sort of, of mixed diet. We get all kinds of what I call food orthodoxies uh, coming into uh, the farmer's market. And of course, we've, I mean, across the aisle from me, there's a man who sells raw meat and people will go up and be like, oh, wow, raw meat. So obviously everybody, there's a broad range of opinion about what's best. But I really believe that wheatgrass is not only excellent in keeping your body fed, but also regulating your body. It's got a lot of these micronutrients that you don't always get out of uh, processed foods or out of foods that are grown to a shelf-stable point. So um, one of the other things that I think is nice about wheatgrass, I think especially for people who maybe aren't really that interested in incorporating a, a great volume of vegetables or fruits, is that you can get a pretty decent dose um, in a very small amount. I mean, you serve the wheatgrass in, in what it's like the juice is an ounce, two ounce, three ounce portion. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, generally speaking, people order between one and four ounces. And of course, I've seen people drink more and it's really uh, not a problem. On the other hand, it would take about a half a pound of 
of wheatgrass, harvested wheatgrass, to make a five-ounce cup. So one of the reasons that the juice is so healthy for you is that it's very concentrated. There's actually quite a bit. Now, this is really the ratio of most root and leafy vegetables. You'll get about 10 fluid ounces per dry pound. Uh, on the other hand, um, since wheatgrass is so much more potent as a food in general, it's plenty in a little cup. Well, I want to get back to kind of the production end of things. Can you kind of take us through the the life cycle of the wheatgrass? Sure. Uh, We get uh, pallets of seeds. Uh, These are organic, hard, red wheat seeds, and they're uh, shipped to us, and then we will plant them while they're still dry. We'll plant them on top of a tray of soil uh, or sometimes into containers because we have people buy containers for their pets. Uh, And then these containers or flats are placed into a temperature-controlled room that's also uh, got a misting system. So basically on a timer, every three hours uh, the room is misted, and this allows the plants to germinate, to sprout, and then to grow. And uh, because the the room is artificially lit, they grow straight up. So it, it's got a it's it's a clean and regulated approach to growing something that would naturally uh, be found in the springtime only. And is that is that the kind of I'm assuming that's probably the most common way to produce wheatgrass. I mean, I wouldn't probably go to like. Uh, a wheatgrass farm out in the middle of the country where they would have like open fields of wheatgrass. Would you see that that would be used for a similar application or is it primarily kind of more of a greenhouse product? I think any time that you encounter wheatgrass, either as a living plant or as a fresh juice, it's going to be grown in the fashion that I grow it. There are uh, people who make chlorophyll, uh, like freeze-dried chlorophyll mixtures, and those are generally from field-grown grasses, and those would be harvested and processed in the springtime. Uh, And, of course, that generates a shelf-stable product, uh, but you lose quite a bit of the nutrition uh, in that process. So what happens if, you know, you were just to kind of let the grass keep growing, essentially? Oh, it would it would uh, tassel out uh, and turn to wheat. Uh, and uh, when I was upstate, one of the benefits of being in the country is that you could actually do that. Now, of course, it takes acres and acres to generate a large quantity of seed. So we never really were able to generate our own seed. But we definitely grew the wheat out uh, both to try to generate our own variety and also just we sold it as a decorative thing. You'll see them in flower markets. And how did I mean, how did you get into the grass game in general? I mean, how, why was that the thing that you stumbled into for your business? Uh, well, I got started uh, as a farmer. Uh, when I went to California, I started working on a peach farm, and that was a, a real eye-opener for me. Up until then, I, I'm, I'm a city boy. I grew up in Flushing, and we had like little tomatoes in the garden, but I never really understood uh, how rewarding it can be to produce your own food. And of course, there's no I mean, in my opinion, there's no better place to experience that than California. Everything grows like magic. So uh, coming back east, I decided that I wanted to be a farmer, and I ended up going to the Union Square Farmer's Market to find employment, uh, and I ended up working uh, on a fish farm, actually, uh, up in Forestburg, New York, and uh, from there ended up uh, transitioning to working for a wheatgrass producer, and then I kind of put that all together. Uh, Wheatgrass has the uh, advantage, as far as farms go, of only requiring a very small space and a small quantity of money. So I was able to get my business started um, in the basement of the farmhouse I was living in. 
Wow. And getting into the green market, I mean, you've been there for, for almost 15 years now. What, is, what was the landscape like 15 years ago? I mean, I know when you go to Union Square Market now, it's like this kind of thriving behemoth that seems to be like kind of ever uh, growing and full all the time. I mean, was it, was it like that 15 years ago? Were there other producers who were doing anything similar to yours? How was that kind of entry process? Uh, well, basically... The green market uh, started at Union Square in 1977, and my first year there uh, was in the spring of 95. And and by the time I arrived at the green market, uh, I was very much the new kid, and uh, there were quite a few uh, old-timers and even some original farmers. Um, the market itself is similar. I would say that it's the... Um, proliferation of small and niche and home processed foods that have really changed the character of green market uh, as people's uh, tastes for local produce and local food products have uh, you know increased there's been more and more uh, home processing and more and more small batch processing so uh, now we have uh, beer we have a lot more wine we have uh, a lot of different kinds of cheeses and I would just say in general uh, the demand for for product has has driven a proliferation of, of uh, value adding um, but the uh, the apple guys who are there are still there and, nice. and the potato guys as well um, so it, it was interesting. We, you know, we were at the, um, slow food, uh, New York, slow food, New York put on a slow spirits event last night, looking at uh, small scale regional distilleries and, uh, some grow NYC reps were there talking about the regional grain production, um, and the regional grain product. Now, because you're using a, a hard wheat, is that something that you could at some point in the future or even now source regionally? Or is the variety that you're working with, is it important that it comes from a particular place in the country or the world? Well, it's, of course, I, I don't have uh, universal knowledge of the grains that are out there. What? <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> That's, that may be the only time I ever say something <laughs> like that. Uh, but yeah, essentially, um, we've generally been forced to rely on wheat from a drier climate than the East Coast. So we, uh, we both, uh, both from an ethical point of view and also from a real business point of view, we need to use organic seeds. So uh, when wheat is harvested in a moist environment, it can get fungus spores on it and I just uh, I have used several different varieties of uh, East Coast wheat because hard red wheat is produced uh, probably all over the country uh, and uh, at the same time I've had the best success uh, because of my chemical free process I've had the best success with wheat that's sourced from the West. Interesting. Well, I would be curious, you know, to kind of catch up with you in a couple of years and see if, if the kind of East Coast uh, production is able to kind of join there or... Well, one of the advantages to getting wheat from the East Coast would be that it would be a tremendous savings in shipping. So I'm certainly excited to uh, try and to test grow uh, and to work with any grower that's interested in, in trying out those, those kind of varieties. And can you, well, that was one of the things we were talking about a lot last night is the importance of having a kind of diversity of outlets for the regional grain movement. You know, there's bread and spirits and beer and 
the wheatgrass production like you do. Um, can you give us a sense of, of scale of like how much, like how much seed are you going through or, um, you know, for folks who maybe are like myself, not super familiar, like what's the translation from, you know, pound of seed to pound of wheatgrass or, and, right. and like, what is your kind of, you know, what's an average kind of production volume for you? Well, es- essentially, um, you can get approximately one bushel of wheat, which if I'm not mistaken, is a little bit more than a 50 pound bag uh, out of like two and a half or three acres. Now, production methods vary. If you grow everything by hand, like you do on a small farm, you'll get much more yield. But from from a machine, uh, from machine run farm, you know, you're getting between 20 and 25 pounds of wheat per acre. We go through two pallets or two and a half pallets a year and a pallet is a 50 50 pound bag so you know we're supporting you know 400 or 500 acres uh of of grain production and of course uh, the more wheatgrass we sell the more you know the more farmland we support that's fascinating uh we are going to take a quick break before we do i want to give a quick shout out to Joseph Bywater, who I did meet at the event last night, longtime listener of the Farm Report, who was so lovely to come and say hello. It was really nice to meet him. Hang tight. We are here in the studio with Stuart Borowski, the Union Square grass man, and we'll be back for more grass talk. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. You know, there's no more telling aspect, no more revealing virtue of a group of people having evolved in a lovely way than how they feed themselves, how they entertain, how they put food on the table, what they put on the table. Heritage Radio Network provides the clearest evidence that there's hope for us yet. Heritage Radio's like Fairway Market in that we both care deeply about what you're having for dinner tonight. Heritage Radio Network is not just about food, though. Every time I tune in, I learn something about things other than food, too. Architecture, design, stuff like that. But from where I stand, I still say, if you can't eat it, what's the point? For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. You are listening to The Dream by Cookies. Keep it locked here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are back after that mellow, mellow break song. Thank you for that, Dedrick and Eddie uh, out there doing the engineering for the show today. Um, we are in studio with Union Square's Grass Man, Talking Grass. Uh, if you want to find out more about Stuart and his business, definitely make sure to check out the website, www.unionsquaregrassman.com. Um, folks can find you at the market at Union Square Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, right? Yeah, that's correct. We're actually just about to take our, our uh, yearly break, so I, I'm going to be able to get out of work uh, starting next 
uh, Thursday. Wednesday will be our last day, and then I'll return August 21st. Awesome. So I was wondering about that because it's been such a kind of steamy, a rainy summer. I mean, because you're producing in a temperature-controlled environment, do you still have kind of the impacts of the weather, or are you able to kind of escape most of that? Well, both. Uh, we are able to escape most of that. Uh, everything inside is, is not only indoors, but also air-conditioned, and uh, the rooms are... Uh, plastic and concrete so it's able to keep them clean. On the other hand, uh, the the air quality itself is still impacted by the regional weather and of course everything that, that goes to market, we don't have a refrigerated truck. So to a certain extent the, uh, the wheatgrass grows better in the winter and the spring than it will in the summer and that's why we schedule our break uh, for, for July through August because I find it's uh, when a lot of our regular customers are away and also it gives me the opportunity to dry out everything, uh, clean it up and uh, prepare for, you know, for Labor Day. Well, it sounds like maybe you're doing quite a bit of work during your vacation. Yeah, it's, it's a farmer vacation, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we've talked a lot about the grass, but you guys also have a lovely kind of, and I think kind of rotating selection of uh, salad greens and other sprouts. Can you talk to us a little bit about the other stuff that you're growing? Yeah, uh, basically we are growing uh, pea shoots, sunflower greens, buckwheat greens, radish sprouts, and uh, we've been experimenting with some other uh, fast-growing greens. These all share the same characteristics of wheatgrass uh, in that they all grow very rapidly. They all have a lot of the nutrition that you would get out of the seed and out of the sprout, but they're definitely, uh, they're, they're more tender. And so they're, they're a much more, um, they're a much more flexible kind of food item. You know, you could put them onto uh, sandwiches. You can use them in a saute. You could definitely make great salads out of them. We're very proud to supply a lot of the restaurants that come to the Union Square Farmer's Market to source uh, for their menus. We supply ABC Kitchen and Jeeva Mukti and uh, actually uh, quite a few. Uh, I'm going blank on No, on I know. I, mean, I feel like I always remember the ABC Kitchen from when I was working because they would come and just buy so many <laughs> yeah, no, God bless them. They're really uh, all of the restaurants that that patronize the farmers at Union Square Farmers Market are really uh, putting their money where their mouth is because these people are supporting local agriculture in a way that not only provides direct benefit but also inspires the customers when they find out that we've been selling to Daniel or to Hugh Kitchen. Then they're like, "Wow, if those guys who are you know world." class chefs know what's good, then we're going to patronize this guy as well. Nice. So I'm curious, you know, one of the challenges uh, in particular for produce uh, purveyors at the market is, you know, you want to show up with enough to make your tables look, you know, full and bountiful. And you kind of want to leave the market with your table more or less as empty as possible. Now, because your products are essentially alive until till you serve them, you have, I think, a little bit more uh, flexibility than maybe someone who's cutting, you know, lettuces or carrots. Well, maybe not carrots, but some of the more perishable items. What happens if you kind of grow too much or it's a really slow week at the market or it's rainy? Um, what What's kind of the uh, end game for a product that you're just kind of not able to move through for whatever reason? We have a number of farmers at the market uh, that we've kind of 
partnered with to dispose of all the greens that are either unsaleable or just extra. Very often we're left with greens that are still really fresh at the end of the day, but they're not going to be as fresh the next market. And we already have new greens that we've planted 10 days before. So uh, Lynn Haven uh, goat cheese uh, she takes the grass for her ducks and chickens and uh, we supply uh, fantastic gardens with many of the cut down flats he uses them for compost compost and there's a, a number of other farmers who, who take it as well one of the other areas uh, that was new to me when i was working the stand was the uh you know grass for pets um, I feel like I always have this conversation with like my dog or cat owning friends. I'm like, grass, is it good for dogs and cats? Is it bad for dogs and cats? But then, you know, there you are at the stand and it's like a real treat for animals. So can you talk about what type of animals um, eat the grass and like how, I mean, basically how do we serve, serve our like canine or feline <laughs> friends? Uh, I, I guess forks on the left. Yes. Oh, that sounds right. Yeah. yeah so something <laughs> like that. Uh, so, uh, most people with pets have indoor pets and because the pets are indoors they're given a, a proper diet of processed food but they usually don't have access to greens. Greens are extremely important for herbivores of course because they're the main food source for most uh, you know rodents and uh, birds and, and a, a whole kind of uh, basically anything that eats plants is going to want greens. Uh, but carnivores, cats and dogs specifically, also need greens. They need them uh, as a digestive aid. They need them uh, for minerals. And they basically enjoy eating them as well. I think it really gives a cat and a dog the sense that they're outside on some level. I know that a small quantity of pet grass is sufficient for a cat, but many of our customers will buy huge quantities just so the cats can kind of like lay in it or play with it so uh, essentially it's a, an enjoyable treat for the pets that also help them to get rid of hairballs and uh, get rid of the other things in their diet that they can't digest and so you're seeing um you know we were talking a little bit in the break that this kind of the the pet food and the pet feeding aspect of your business is growing a little bit um in this just in this last year or over the summer catch us up a bit well um essentially what's occurred over uh my over my time at Union Square has been a, a slow but steady exodus of local residential customers. We still have a, a great loyal customer base, but many of them have moved out of the Union Square neighborhood just because of the way real estate works. And over 20 years, it's not surprising that the neighborhood would change. We're lucky that it's been more and more upscale. Uh, and quite a few of our customers moved to the area that we produce in, to the Park Slope area. And so last year I decided to try to reach out to those customers and to their neighbors uh, who have pets. Very, very often they're not able to come into the city. If they don't work in town, they're not going to be able to come to Union Square. And I feel that we have a unique product in that um, the cat grass and the wheat grass that we grow is basically of a much higher quality and much fresher than the stuff that you can find in the large chain pet stores so so we've started a website it's called high rise pet supplies and um you can order online and we'll bring it to you i have a really cool uh worksman tricycle uh which i pedal around delivering the grass i kind of imagine you with like a bell like 
come get your grass, you know, bring out your pets. Here we are. Um, well, one of the one of the um, challenges I know for farmers kind of in, in general, urban or rural, is, you know, land access and kind of st- uh, stability with regards to the property that they're farming on and making sure that if they're investing in improvements in the space that they're going to be able to reap the long-term benefits of that investment. And, and I'm wondering for your business, um, are you are you leasing? Are you do you own your space? Does that kind of um, factor into your business at all? Have you always been in the same space in the city? Yes, yeah. We we moved uh, down to Brooklyn, uh, as I said, in '99, and I was very fortunate to meet uh, my landlord, and he's just a he's just a really easy person to work with, which is a blessing because that's the thing with real estate is that things change and you need a lot of money or you got to change with them. Uh, on the other hand, um, one of the things that I would be excited to do would be to get some outdoor space of my own, both so that I could produce other things that people want. And finally, uh, so that I could process the compost on my own, because even though I'm happy to supply these other farmers with it, the truth is, is that uh, we would have a great use for it as well. But but yeah, basically, uh, land issues are difficult. And also, uh, really, it, it's always a huge portion of, of a farmer's business plan. Yeah, no, I would say I'm curious. Um... I'm totally losing my train of thought here. Let me skip ahead. So as, um, you know, as someone who's been a long term and a long time, um, you know, uh, standard at the green market, I want to just pick it. I want to move off topic just a touch and pick your brain a little bit um, about uh, the good, the best kind of like on the sly, uh, under the radar lunches, snacks from other vendors or other people in the Union Square area, because I know that I'm sure over the years you've had to scramble many a times for a bite in between, you know, queues at the stand. And if there was anywhere in particular you wanted to direct people to or things that might, you know, I don't want to blow up your top secret spots, but maybe if there's like... I mean, I'll, I'll totally answer your question, but but it's definitely not my best top secret spot. You can always find those places, New Yorkers know, by looking for the line of quiet, furtive individuals. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, definitely um, the, the fish purveyors have smoked fish, and many of the bakers have still warm bread and basically smoked fish and cheese and some of my sunflower sprouts on a semolina bread. That really does it. Uh, yeah in the winter time when we set up and it's extremely cold sometimes i'll actually set up a little camp stove in the bus and then we'll cook something and that's really awesome too um but yeah basically there's a there's like there's got to be 12 falafel places around and uh it was really uh rainbow falafel will always be my favorite because they were totally there i don't know since the dawn of time but uh rafiki's cart is on the corner over uh, on the north side and uh he 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 cut me a break and refused to take uh my tip because he was like no no no, we're brothers we work together we are brothers so i i just uh i i really think you can't go wrong patronizing any one of those guys awesome that's great well thanks for for sharing Stuart and thank you so much for coming in today oh it was my pleasure and thank you so much for having me so as I said before if you want to find out more um, definitely check out the website www.unionsquaregrassman.com and if you're interested in the pet supply that is 
highrisepetsupplies.com and you can go there directly or if you check out our market website uh, there's a there's a link there as well awesome and then obviously if you're in the new york area in the union square area in particular you can find him slinging uh, turning and burning the, the, the juice machine i definitely worked up a good right hand bicep uh when with the winter i spent yeah. making juice with you you, um, you make a mean single <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so Stuart is there Monday, Wednesday, uh, Friday, and Saturday. Um, thanks so much for tuning in. Stay, stay tuned uh, next week. We've got the guys from uh, Runa Tea in, kind of talking tea. So looking forward to that. Um, and up next, after, after a short break, we have the YC market update. So stay tuned for that. This, like all 30 of the Heritage Radio Network's uh, weekly programs, is available for free. Visit our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. You can find our programs on iTunes, through Stitcher Smart Radio. We are a membership-supported organization, so we hope you'll consider clicking that Donate tab. Become a member today. We'd love to send out one of our new totes. And in the meantime, keep tuning in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.